You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to our third episode of Does This Does Count as study? study? I'm Kate Pitches. And I'm your other host, Henry Hollis. And today we are joined with a psychology lecturer, Ted Ruffman. It was a seriously stimulating conversation about mental health, about New Zealand's culture, how we raise children. We covered a whole wide range of topics, but we wanted to give an initial disclaimer. This episode contains subjects about mental health and anxiety, so it could be potentially distressing. However, we'd like to emphasise the solution, which is just to, to... Talk to your friend, talk to your mate, and be there for each other. Because there is always someone that will have your back. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of... Does this count as study? And today we're joined with a, our very special guest, Ted Ruffman. He's a psychology professor and a very smart man. Hello, uh, glad to be here. Welcome on the show. So, today we thought we would talk about the brain, how it works and how it is changed by the environment and other people. Okay. Yeah, um, first off though, I reckon we want to know a little bit about your background and how you actually came to be a professor at Otago University. Okay, well, um, I did my undergraduate and graduate studies in Canada. Uh, I moved to England for a postdoc. Uh, I worked there. I ended up getting a lectureship. I was there for 13 years. And I've been at, in New Zealand for about 19. So um, I like New Zealand. It's certainly the country where I want to live, and I'm not going to move. Did you start at Otago 19 years ago? Yes, so my first year was 2002, um, and uh, I've been in the psychology department the whole time, and um, I've seen the university grow, um, so it's, it's been a good, good job. Our first question comes from a student around Dunedin, and she was asking about the four diagnoses of attachment. Would you be able to speak a little bit on what that means? Sure. Um, so around about the time kids are a year or 18 months, um, researchers have uh, used uh, a, a test which is called an attachment test. And so what they do is they take a mom and a child and they bring them to the university and they put them in a room and they put a bunch of toys in the center of the room and they allow the child to explore the room and to play with the toys. And um, you you then what what happens is you bring an experimenter into the room so the child has never met the experimenter before and so therefore the child would uh, understandably be a bit unsure and um, you're interested in how the child responds to the experimenter and how they respond to their mother and whether they continue to uh, explore the toys and then what happens is um, the mother goes away and the child is left with this stranger who they've never met before. And again, you're interested in the child's behavior and you, you expect a child to be upset at that point because they're, this, is, this is if they're securely attached to mother. Uh, sometimes this is done with father. It's typically done with mother. So I usually talk about mothers. Um, then what happens is the mother returns. At that point, you expect the child to um, 
to to go to the mother and to seek some sort of reassurance. Um, so you're interested in whether the child does that. And there's a few other phases, but those are the, the main phases of an attachment test. So on the basis of this, you can categorize kids, um, and there's four categories. So some kids are securely attached to their mother. And, you know, it could be the father, it could be even a nursery worker if the child is in some sort of nursery uh, arrangement. But what you're looking for, a kid who is securely attached, you would expect them to use the, the the mother as a kind of secure base, and they would they would hang around with the mother initially when they enter the room. They would then go explore the toys. They would look back to the mother frequently for signs of reassurance and safety. Uh, when the stranger comes into the room, they often go back to their mother. They kind of are a bit hesitant to explore again, but eventually they go and explore the toys again. When the mother leaves, you expect a child to be distressed. Um, if the child isn't distressed, that can be a sign of insecure attachment. When the mother returns, you expect the child to seek reassurance again, and um, you expect the child to go to the mother to be reassured and then to begin to explore the toys again. So a child who is securely attached to uh, his or her mother will uh, be upset when the mother leaves, will be uh, calmed when the mother returns. So that, that's a kind of normal attachment pattern. It's about two-thirds of, of kids would be uh, securely attached to the parent. That leaves a third who are not securely attached. Of those, they can be avoidant of the mother. So when the mother returns, they don't seek any kind of reassurance. And that's presumably because they haven't got that reassurance from the mother or the father or whoever it is. It's usually the mother or the father. They haven't got that reassurance in the past, so they no longer seek it. This is at a year or 18 months, so it's pretty early in their life. Yeah. Um, a child uh, could also be resistant. So when the mother leaves, they're not just distressed, but they're really, really distressed. And so a child who shows that kind of uh, behavior and then who also, when the mother returns, is almost inconsolable. So they're still crying and they, they can't get over it. They can't go explore the room because they're too upset. That child would be insecure in a different way. Instead of avoiding the mother, they would be resistant, okay, resistant to her leaving. What percentage? That's the... Yeah, it's so so there's 33% of kids who are insecurely attached. There's another a fourth category of kids who are just inconsistent. They show avoidance, they show uh, resistance to the mother leaving, but they don't show any clear pattern. So, you know, it's like it, it depends on the culture as to what percent are uh, resistant or avoidant. So in Japan, they would be much more resistant to the mother leaving. Uh, in in Western cultures, they're, they're more avoidant. Why do you think that is? We heard a fact that it takes about 90 seconds to stop a Japanese baby from crying versus other cultures where it would take longer or shorter. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so one is tempted to say, oh, that could be genetic, right? Because there's a different gene pool in Japan than there is um, in, say, a, a Western country like New Zealand. Um, th that's tempting, and one can never be totally sure, but what is clear is that there are cultural expectations which are different in Japan than there are in, say, New Zealand or Canada or America or Great Britain. 
So in Japan, it's really frowned upon for a child to cry in a public place. And in fact, some politicians have tried to make it more acceptable. Uh, but it is really frowned upon traditionally. And that means parents do their best to really stop a child from crying. And so I think probably what is the case is children have learned in Japan that crying is less acceptable. And mothers have become better at soothing the child and not allowing that crying to continue. Uh, in some other cultures, like in fact Canada, where I'm from, mm -hmm. Um, those uh, those children are less easily consoled. They cry louder. They are less easily consoled by the parent. And that's probably, again, cultural expectations because in Canada, it's more acceptable for a child to cry in a public place. So that pressure has never been placed on the child. Are children that young able to pick up? on the cultural, dif not the cultural difference, but the... Parental response? That was it more the parents that... You know, in the first few months of life, children are picking up on parental uh, behavior. And so sometimes what happens in about maybe 15% of, um, of, of cases, mothers get depressed. And fathers also, roughly about the same percentage, will get depressed after a baby is born. It's a big change. And although it can be really rewarding, it also means often sleepless nights and you can get babies who are colicky, who cry, and it changes the nature of the marital relationship. And in fact, there's research indicating that marital quality tends to plummet after the birth of the first child. Um, it, you know, to, I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but if you look at childless couples, um, eventually they get to that same point where marital quality decreases over a period of, say, seven years. But it just, after the birth of the first child for uh, a couple with 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 children, uh, that marital quality plummets. So kids are picking up on, on signs of depression in mums. Um, they look away from mums who are depressed. Um, they look towards individuals who are not depressed. So they're looking to get something from that uh, social relationship really early. And they're responding to parents um, very clearly. And so parents who are depressed are not actually giving their children very much. And so the kids just learn, they, they give up looking for it. Mm. And would it be right to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you haven't learned it, from the parents, then that would kind of stem into like cultural um, so, yeah, boundaries your, or your your expectations that you develop early in life. They they tend to um, they tend to go forward. So, uh, for instance, a kid who is securely attached, you, you know, you think why do why do people bother looking at this, right? So it's about two two thirds are securely attached. Those children are going to show a number of advantages later on. So they'll be, uh, tend to be more popular. They tend to be regarded as leaders. This is when they're four or five. Um, and they tend to be um, sort of not attention seeking. Um, so in that sense, their security has lasted throughout the years. Um, you know, none of these things are written in stone. Um, our early experiences are not necessarily uh, indicative of what we're going to be like uh, with 100% certainty as adults. We differ as individuals. Our personalities are different. We can be more or less affected by the, the, the style of our parents. 
But certainly there are things that parents can do early in life which will make a difference, will, which make it easier for a child to get off on the right foot. What sort of things would those be Yeah. in, in terms of like cultural boundaries or things that we have accepted in New Zealand? Yeah. As a Canadian man coming into New Zealand and seeing yeah. the culture from a different perspective, what are some things that you have noted or would recommend looking into to create a more wholesome culture? I think New Zealand parents are generally really good. And I think New Zealand teachers, if you think about some of the other influences on children, New Zealand teachers are really um, highly skilled. Um, they're, they're good at rewarding uh, good behavior. And I think in the old days, when I went to school in Canada, our teachers were, were more um, punishing of our bad behavior. But what really helps with kids is if you can reward them for their good behavior. And they really respond to that. So um, I think, you know, in general, parents are good. But sometimes parents are not very sensitive towards their children. And if you think about the reasons for that, well, you can often look back to, um, you know, when that parent was a child, their own parents were not very sensitive towards them. And so you can trace it back through generations. Um, but there have been many interventions, over a hundred interventions that have been done with parents um, early. And so uh, perhaps within the first year of life or perhaps just after. And um, researchers can teach parents how to be more sensitive to their child's signals. And that has been shown to be really effective. So I, you know, um, I often think that this would be a really good government policy is to, you know, Aranga Tamariki is faced with some really difficult decisions. Um, you know, I think wherever possible, what you um, can try to do is you can try to train parents to, to be more sensitive to their children. And that has outcomes which are really beneficial long term. There's like a, I'd say New Zealand stigma for parents that is, they're quite not stubborn, but a lot aren't and a lot have kind of not been like that recently, but the classic rugby culture where you have to do this and you have to be a man or you have to, you know. Yeah. Is that um, still a case in um, parenting? Well, I think, I think it, I can't point to any New Zealand research and say automatically there is that difference in the way kids are parented, but somewhere along the line, this kind of thing is creeping into the culture. And um, I think it is notable, we did a study uh, recently where uh, we asked, we got two ethnicities. One was a group of Pakeha, European New Zealanders. One was a group of uh, people from other countries. Um, and we, we asked them questions like, who here has been lonely? Who here has been brokenhearted? Who here has found the meaning of life? Those are personal questions. But um, what we found in um, the New Zealand group is not a single individual of 25 stepped forward to say that they were lonely, that they were um that they were brokenhearted, um, but we know wow. these, we, we know these things exist. And it just as a contrast, in the other group, we found about a, a roughly a third step forward to say they were lonely, um, a third step forward to say they were brokenhearted. Loneliness and brokenheartedness are just experiences that all humans have at some time. 
What were the other groups, the other two groups? You yeah, we had a group of people who were not uh, born in New Zealand. They were uh, came from, I guess, mainly China, sometimes Sri Lanka, and, uh, you know, um, Iraq, but other countries. They, they just, the culture that they had grown up with was different. Mm-hmm. So I think there is that kind of um, perceived need to be staunch in New Zealand. It's coming in somewhere, you know. And I think it's really unfortunate because if you look at the male suicide rates in New Zealand, they're the highest in the developed world. And what males are needing to do, and females, but I think males have a particularly hard time, uh, is to reach out to others and to say, actually, I am lonely. Actually, I am brokenhearted. And that would be the most positive thing. And it's obviously extremely difficult. We need to talk our feelings. You hear that, boys and girls who are listening, talk to each other, talk your feelings, and and be there for each other. If anyone needs anyone, I'm I'm here to chat. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay to not be staunch all the time. This leads into our next question, which is on anxiety and depression in New Zealanders. Um, how does how does anxiety and depression? Why is it so high in New Zealand first, and how does it? form does it form a young environment does it form in a friendship environment parenting environment yeah so anxiety and depression tend to go together um i i mean levels of depression and anxiety are high amongst youth so age 15 to 24 this is the the time when people feel loneliness loneliest um and um I, you know, these are these are normal human experiences. And you think about university, you've got people going away from their homes, they're going to a different culture, um, you know, the university culture, uh, a different city, they don't know anybody, probably, or perhaps. Um, and this is that th- this comes with challenges. Um, These challenges are normal, and it's normal to feel lonely at times. It's normal to feel depressed at times in these kinds of situations. What makes it worse is that there is this kind of feeling that one must be staunch, and that means that people don't talk to one another. And there's a lot of psychology research which shows that uh, the more connected people feel with each other and with groups, uh, the, the better, the higher their well-being so really what people need to be doing is connecting with other people. And when I say connecting, I don't mean just socializing in a superficial way, but having genuine friends who you feel like you can talk about anything with those friends. Like, this is maybe being a bit vulnerable, but like coming from my experience, I can resonate with this like 100%, like feeling like you have to be staunch all the time or have a persona that you've got your shit together a hundred percent and then you're right like it doesn't allow for those connections and deeper things to be like actually you know I don't know what I'm doing right now actually you know I'm a bit lonely or I'm a bit sad or actually I'm really good right now so yeah so so yeah because there is this expectation it makes it difficult for people to talk about these things and of course, you don't have a guarantee that the person you're talking to will necessarily accept exactly what you're saying. Some people may not be comfortable with that. Other people will be very comfortable. They'll be relieved because that means they can talk about their own issues, right? If you were an undergraduate student listening to this now, which there will be, 
and they're hearing this and they're going, oh, my God, I recognize this. You know, sometimes I'm too staunch. Sometimes I'm not as expressive of my feelings as I should be. What would be a solution or a way that you would recommend for them to actually try and start to make this process of reaching out and creating these deeper, less superficial connections? Well, in normal uh, friendships, what happens is people uh, relatively slowly divulge more and more information about themselves. And it's a way of kind of checking out, is it safe? Uh, If I divulge this information, will I get a good response back? And so I think it's basically taking risks, little risks to begin with, you know, so basically talking about some issue, which is important, um, and looking to see how somebody responds to that. Like, like I think not everybody is going to feel uh, totally comfortable with that, and they may not respond in the way you're looking for. So it means finding people who are responsive. Um, and for some people, it'll be a total relief, right? Because it gives them permission. It shows them that they're not alone. The problem is if nobody talks about loneliness, then people start feeling like they're the only ones, right? And they feel like they can't talk to anybody. And then, you know, they feel like there's no choice. Um, and, and you know, so that that's a kind of hopeless situation, but it needn't be hopeless. And so I think it's just a matter of, of talking to others about little things to begin with. And then, you know, trying to develop genuine friendships, which you can share important information, which is... Um, life-enhancing to do that. What I've seen as well is that even if you haven't talked to people much about your feelings or their feelings, they don't mind when you do tell them big things about how you're really sad or you're really upset about this. They don't actually mind. Like People are so afraid to talk to people when it's so much better to just do it and kind of overcome that boundary of fear and just start chatting. Yeah, and I think as people age, they they learn that this is more acceptable, right? But but it's still it's hard in in this culture, I think, to do that. So, but I think it's just a matter of taking a few risks, right? Just putting yourself out there a little bit. And of course, if you have really big issues, then um, maybe you want to talk to a professional, to a clinical psychologist, or to to a, a counselor of some sort. Uh, and again, there is absolutely no shame in doing this. In, in Canada, where I'm from, uh, people would do this uh, much more often. And, you know, I, I trained initially as a clinical psychologist, and we all felt that we had to do this just because it would make us better clinical psychologists. So uh, it, it was just more acceptable. And, and I think New Zealand's got a, a bit of distance to get to that point. But, but really, it's time. Mm, you're right. You're absolutely right. What are you in the most important ages for going to a psychologist? Um, well, uh, 15 to 24 is the age when people really feel loneliest. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's a good time to go then. I mean, I think a lot of people are, are struggling with um, who they are in life and, and what they want and, you know, um, so it, it's a helpful thing to work out issues at that point. I think at any point in your life, it, it's it, it's a good thing. Imagine you've got somebody there who who is actually listening to you, who doesn't judge you for the things that you're describing, um, and who has the potential to help you. So 
Uh, there's a joke, um, how many clinical psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change, right? So <laughs> it means that the client has to really put some work in. Mm. I like that. Like That's that powerful. Um, some people talk about, and I've heard a lot, that um, the brain is not actually like 100% no, you're not using 100% of your brain function. Like you're only using 10%, 8%. Don't know the actual stat, but is this true? And is there actually a way to to do it? Yeah, I've I've heard that kind of um, saying myself. Uh, I, you know, if if you look at the brain and you look at activity in the brain at any moment, most of our brain is active. Um, you know, and if you give a person a particular task that maybe you'll get greater activity in a particular region, but we're, we're using all or most of our brain pretty much all the time. There's activity going on there. Um, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. Could, mm. could we be tapping more potential? I'm not, I'm not sure. On that note, I'd just like to say a huge thank you for coming on here and speaking to us, Ted, because these are the issues that actually do matter coming in, in university and stuff. And from my experiences, friends' experiences, it's it's important that we admit yeah, that we're not yeah. staunch all the time. Yeah, yeah these, these, these are really important issues. I couldn't agree more. And uh, all the power to people to, to you know, to... to deal with them and to uh, live life to the fullest. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering the same, then talk it out. Yeah, talk it out. People are there for you. I'm here for you. I can give you a hug. So is Kate. (laughs) Um, But it's important. It's important that we're happy as a community and you're happy as a person. Yeah. Thank you, Ted, for talking to us about that. Okay. Thank you very much. the Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.